um, I want to begin this way. Just a couple things that I find to be humorous. The first one is this. Um, one of you in the days leading up to today, which is Super Bowl Sunday, um, had sent me a message that's been going around to uh, pastors, and it goes like this. Uh, you should be as excited about church as the Super Bowl, and so when your pastor makes a point this Sunday, pour Gatorade over his head. And, and so this morning, I had, I didn't have anybody, nobody has Gatorade to pour over my head, but I did I did have seven of our kiddos come to my office and give seven of these. So I have the other six right there at the bottom. So I'm going to hold on to at least one of these. And if I need to get some Gatorade along the way, you know why. So uh, it's accessible. The second thing is um, we've been going through Genesis together. We've been in Genesis 1 through 3. I have, I will tell you this, I, this has probably been my most favorite sermon series I've got to do since being here because it's something that is so familiar and yet, uh, there's so much that I have not seen before and learning alongside with you. And so I've had uh, good theological discussions with some of you. I've had some more interesting discussions. And uh, Skip Glanzer, if you're here this morning, I told you I was going to call you out this morning. Um, I had a, a profound theological discussion uh, with one of our venerable saints here, Skip. And, and uh, he, he talked to me after the service. This was actually in the middle of this week about an offhand remark I had made about uh, where we were in uh, the chapter 3, the, the fall of the man and the woman, and, and I had said that it doesn't actually say here whether they ate of an apple or not. It actually just says that they ate of a fruit, and to which Skip came up to me and he says, well, if that's the case, wh why do you call this thing right here an Adam's apple, preacher? What do you, what do, you do with that? And so um, I stand corrected, Skip. I'm learning new things all the time, and I just love reading the Bible in community. It's a, it's a wonderful thing, so thanks for that. This is a famous story that we've looked at. We've seen how Genesis 2 tells us about the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden. And chapter 2 had ended with innocence and joy of the first marriage that had taken place. Last week, if you were with us, we saw how sin entered into the world and we begin with the words in chapter eight, uh, in, in chapter three, verse eight, about how after they sin, the, the man and the woman, they each eat of the fruits of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. One is deceived, the other rebels willfully, and it began in innocence, it ends in shame, and in verse eight we get those words. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Walking in the garden. I'm reading through Exodus right now, and I've come to the part in the story of Exodus where it describes the tabernacle, and it describes the building of the tabernacle. And I will tell you this, every other time I have read Exodus, I enjoy the parts about the story, the, the, the ten plagues, the getting out of Egypt part, going to Mount Sinai, the rebellion of that place. It's fascinating. But I will tell you, when I hit chapter 25, which begins to talk about the building of the tabernacle, and it's going to be so many cubits, this, this, that, and the other. It's going to be this long, it's going to be this ornate, da 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 I find myself just, my eyes glaze over, and I go, Lord, will you end it so I can just get to the Psalms and get to the New Testament? That's just, I'm being honest. That, that is how I have approached the first several times of reading about the tabernacle, except for this time. And I'm going to tell you why. The tabernacle was supposed to be the place 
where God's presence would dwell with his people. That's the portable tabernacle. Later, there was the permanent temple that existed in Jerusalem where God's presence would dwell. Something I've noticed this time around as I'm reading Genesis 1 through 3, and I'm reading this later account about the tabernacle and the description of it, is how, how there's a whole lot that's going on in overlap that I hadn't seen before. I'll show it to you. G.K. Beale, uh, New Testament scholar, uh, has written a, a book called New Testament Biblical Theology. A lot of this comes from him showing the parallels between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden. You can put that picture up on the screen so you can get a picture of, if we have it, a, a picture of what the tabernacle looked like. But there you go. Found a dramatic one so you can really get an idea of it. Okay? And he talks about how there's parallels in the imagery. Let me show you what I mean. At the end of gar- the, the story of the Garden of Eden, how many, what, what do you have with the man and the woman? You have them cast out of the garden, and there's two well, at least more than one, because it's not just one cherub. There's cherubim that are placed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden to keep the man and woman from the tree of life, right? We'll get to that in a couple weeks. But when you look at the tabernacle, if you were to go inside of there, you would see a couple of things. There was the holy place, but then there was also the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant would dwell. And if you've seen the Indiana Jones film, you know that the Ark of the Covenant has, what, a couple of cherubim, right, that are over the mercy seat, protecting the mercy seat. In fact, there's also, between the most holy place and the holy place, there's a veil. And that linen has on it multiple cherubim, protecting the most holy place. So you see a parallel in the imagery there. Let me give you another one. There was a golden lampstand that would have been in that most holy place, or in the holy place. And also in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and it's described with flowers and cups and calyxes, and it makes it look like a symbolic tree that many scholars have pointed out. You can't help but think of the tree of life there. Wood carvings described in First Kings talking about the temple. And those wood carvings, those ornate carvings, have garden-like features. Another parallel that you might see, or that you can't help but notice, is that which direction is Adam, are Adam and Eve cast out of the garden? The answer is east. And which direction does that tabernacle face? East. The temple. That's well east. That's where you enter and that's where you exit through. There's a river that flowed out of Eden. We, we noticed that a couple weeks ago. And the future temple, Ezekiel 47, talks about how there will be a river that flows out of it. There's precious metal that you see in the Garden of Eden. And yet, in the sanctuary of the tabernacle, there's also that same that there's, there's also gold and silver and so on. And the priestly garments have those same metals as well that you see in the Garden of Eden. Sabbath rest. That's another one. I'm just giving you seven here. There's like 15 that I found. But let me give you another one. Sabbath rest. God creates his creation in six days. And on the last day, the seventh day, he enters into his Sabbath rest. Not because he's just tired, but because his work is completed where he dwells with the man and with the woman. And when you read, next time you read Exodus, notice that it describes that same kind of process. There's a description of the tabernacle, and then you get to chapter 31, the end of it describes the Sabbath rest that is commanded for God's people. And so one of the things that you and I have pointed out multiple times has been that you have to remember that Genesis is not written to 21st century American Christians. It is first written 
to those who came out of the Egyptian exile or a captivity in exile, the post-Sinai Christians and the uh, post-Sinai Israelites in the wilderness. And so imagine what it would have been like for you to have Exodus, the commandments in Exodus, the, the Ten Commandments, but also the description of the tabernacle, but you're reading Genesis 2 and 3 as a good Israelite. You had been reading this and going, what I'm reading about here, I'm reminded of because I see the tabernacle over there. And so you wouldn't be able to help but notice the symbolism there. And so here's what I want to challenge you with. The next time you read 1 Kings or you read Chronicles or you read Exodus, ask yourself the question, how does this point me back to Eden, the symbolism here, into the presence of the Lord? Fascinating. Hold on to this thought because we'll come back to it at the end. And so many biblical scholars have looked at Eden and have seen it as something like a garden sanctuary, a garden tabernacle, if you will, where the man and the woman serve a priestly function. They're made in the image of God. They're God's representatives on earth. To Genesis 1:28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and so on where they serve a priestly function to oversee what God had given, kind of like the way you would have the priest in the tabernacle or temple. And so this setting is so important to get because you have God in his wonderful, perfect sanctuary with his people, the man and the woman, and they introduce something into this holy place that should not be there, sin. You notice that in verse 8, we have for the first time since, well, really, since verse 1, the description of God. Look at that in verse 8. What do you have there? It is the Lord God. But you haven't seen that since verse 1 of chapter 3. When he hit chapter 2, the serpent with his deceptive tongue said, God. He had said, did God actually say? You remember God behind it is that word Elohim, the creator, powerful God. But to say the Lord is also to say he is Yahweh, his personal name, the redeemer, covenant God who's in right relationship with you and I. That part was absent in the mouth of the serpent. But we get it back again here, the Lord God. And you can see that intimacy with God is what is at stake here. I want you to imagine you know, losing someone that you love. Many of us have in the last year, whether it's been a husband, whether it's been a wife, whether it's been a cousin, whether it's been a daughter, son, so on. And for each one of us, when we lose someone that we love, there's that longing feeling within each one of us that goes, I long for what we had. I long for the way things were. And that's the feeling that comes to my mind when I read those words, the Lord God was walking in the garden. This current state that you and I are in now is not the way it's supposed to be. You ever find yourself crying out going, God, where are you? Well, he was there once upon a time. We were made to be in his presence, and the fact that we long for something that we don't presently have tells you what we lost. One of the old theologians, Thomas Aquinas, talks about how when the Bible describes God, he describes God by way of analogy. Our words don't fully describe who this majestic creator God is. And so when you get those words, have you really thought about this? The Lord God was walking in the garden. But God is spirit. So what, is, what in the world does that mean? That he's spirit, but he's walking in the garden. 
Whatever it means, it tells you that the words that we have here don't fully capture the reality of intimacy that God had with his original people. There's a chasm that you and I experience now between our holy God because of sin that we, don't, we didn't used to have. And so this first couple, here's the Lord God in the sanctuary. They're supposed to be, the, this garden sanctuary, they're supposed to be dwelling with him. But they've hidden themselves instead behind the trees that he's created because they ate of the tree that they shouldn't have. And it's just a foolish thought when you see them do this. To think that we can hide from the Lord. We do it when we're afraid, when we're ashamed. Adam did it. Jonah did it. You and I do it. You may not have wanted to come to church this morning because you knew that you would be confronted with your sin. And yet you are here in that moment of, I'm not really sure I want to address this. Imagine how they felt. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. It's impossible to hide from the Lord. That's demonstrated by the interaction that takes place here. And so in verse 10, the Lord calls out to the man. He calls out to Adam, whom he had originally directly given that instruction to. He speaks to Adam, and he uses those words. He says, where are you? Where are you, Adam? And as I read those words this week, I could not help but think of um, my own son, August, and something that Justine and I do. We have monitors in each one of our boys' rooms, uh, or cameras, so we can see what's going on with them. And we have a monitor in our room, so if one of them wakes up, we know what's, what's happening. And every single morning, without fail, August will, will say, when he wakes up, he'll say, Mommy, and it's always Mommy, Mommy, I'm ready to get up. I'm ready to get up. And because he's the firstborn, he's a rule follower, and so he won't get out of his bed until one of us comes and gets him. We'll see how it goes for the secondborn, but that's the firstborn. And every time we open the door, he has, in the meantime, from saying I'm ready to get up to us coming to get him, he has placed himself underneath the big pillow that is on his bed, and he's underneath hiding underneath the pillow. And we can see his little toes sticking out. And so we play the game, and, and we say, where's Augie? Is he under his bed? Is he behind the chair, right? Is he hiding in his closet? And he'll, closet, and he'll eventually jump up and he'll say, here I am, here I am. And I have to tell you, just by the way, it's a sobering thought to think that there will be one day where we will play that game with August and it will be the last time we ever play it and we just don't know when it will happen. And so we do it every single time we play the game. There's other times, though, when I say to August, after he has done something he shouldn't, I'll say, August, where are you? And I know where he is. It's in a more stern voice, but it's still loving at the same time. And I know where he is. I just want him to reveal where he is so that he knows I know where he's at, right? And I think that's what we have here. You, 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 maybe you imagine that when God shows up on the scene and he goes to confront Adam and Eve, maybe he's angry and he goes, Adam, where are you? And he's, and he's stomping in the grass and he's leaving marks you know, behind and he's angry and he's, he's about to get them, right? Maybe that's the thought that you have in your mind. Maybe that's the thought you've always had in your mind when you've read this story. I just want to say, if that's the thought that you have in your mind, it might say more about what you're bringing to the passage than what is actually there. This is the good shepherd. The good shepherd cares for his own sheep. He leaves the 99 for the sake of the one. 
This is the good parent who, even though when his kids mess it up, he pursues after his kids. This is the God who, after all of this, if you don't believe me that this is still a compassionate God, when you get to the end of chapter 3, and these rebels who have shamed themselves, and they put on these ridiculous fig leaves for clothing, God is the one who takes, apparently, an animal, kills it, and gives skin clothing. If you read at the end of chapter 3, so that they would be able to have real garments to cover themselves of their shame. And so when he says, where are you, Adam? This is not about a God who is about to get them. Think about this. If there was ever a time for God to say, you know what? We should start over. It, wasn't, it wouldn't be the Noah story. It would be right here. I mean, this, is, this would be the place to do it. Well, that didn't last very long, Gabriel. Let's start over. Like, this is where I would do it if I was God. This is where I would, I would say, let's hit the reset button. But that's not what God does. This is a God who refuses to give up on man. He doesn't act like we would if we were him. For so many of us, our shame in sin tells us that when we sin, God recoils, that God revolts against us, or he's at least somewhat just kind of generally annoyed with us. Look at you doing it again. But that's not what the Bible says. And in fact, the Bible tells us that when we fall, God's heart is drawn towards us. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. We expect revulsion, but he draws near. And he asks every single one of us the question this morning, where are you going to go, my daughter? Where are you going to go, my son? Don't you know that I can see you today? I'm here to draw you and your mess towards me this morning, right now. And even if you hate yourself, you hate what you've done, even if those around you has given up on you. I haven't. In fact, the conviction that you may feel over your sin right now is evidence of my jealousy toward you that I will not let you remain in your own stuff anymore, but I am coming and drawing near to you. This is the good shepherd. This is the good parent who confronts us lovingly and refuses to allow us to stay where we are. Scripture says in Hosea, if you still don't believe me, how can I give you up? God says to Ephraim. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not like a man. I'm not like you. I don't do it the way you would if you were God. I am the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Isn't it something that God's word is far more severe than you and I can imagine? It calls our sin for what it is. It says it is far worse than you can imagine. But the Bible also says that God's grace and loving kindness and his compassion and drawing near to you is better than you could have ever dared hope. I mean, that's good news. That is good news to know that, that you could come in here this morning going, oh, may God get me this morning. Am I going to be confronted with my stuff? Yes. But will you also be shown the loving kindness of the Lord who loves you? You bet. Absolutely. Watch how Adam responds, though. God confronts Adam, and he says, where are you? Adam replies, and he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Do you notice he actually doesn't answer the question that God asked? God asked the question of location, but Adam instead gives unsolicited information. 
We tend to do that when we have something to hide. And so he gives unsolicited information. And here's how you can tell things are upside down. Adam knows something that he should not have known. How does this rebel know that he is in his birthday suit? And that's the question that the Lord asks. Look right there. He says, who told you you were naked? Who told you? And before you answer that question, Adam, let me ask you another one. I'll just jump to the end. Did you eat of the tree that I said not to eat of? Because that's the only way that you could know. That's the only way that you can know. And so Adam, the right answer in this moment, when God confronts him with his sin, the right answer would have been to say one word. Yes, I ate. I shouldn't have done it. Yes, it was me. But you know, notice what he actually says. Look at the next verse. He says, the woman, oh, you already know we're in trouble, whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate. Now, if you're just barely paying attention to what I've said so far, what I just said right there, uh, you would go, well, it's clear Adam is blaming Eve for what has happened. You would be right about that, shifting blame. But do you notice that he's not just blaming Eve, He's blaming God here as well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, right? This is a far cry from what he said at the end of chapter 2. He had said, he said, this is that last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. The brother had broken out into poetry, but now he's saying, God, look at your creation and what it made me do, right? And so you're witnessing human behavior in the first throes of having come underneath the curse of sin nature of original sin, self-preservation and deflection, failing to take responsibility, blaming everybody else except for you and what you actually did. And so that's a, it is a helpful reminder to me that when someone repents of their sin, it really is a miracle because you naturally are not capable of repenting of your sin. Your natural inclination is to preserve the self. And so it's pitiful. God, I was just walking around in the garden. She handed me the fruit, and I just couldn't help but eat it, right? I kind of think of Moses. When you think of Aaron. When they're at Mount Sinai. Moses comes down from getting the Ten Commandments, and there's a sound that he hears down, down at the bottom of the mountain. And he goes down to the bottom of the mountain, and he sees everybody celebrating and worshiping around this golden calf. And he goes up to Aaron, and he says, Aaron, what in the world just happened? And Aaron goes, they just gave me all this gold. I put it into this furnace, and... I'll pop this calf, right? It, just, it sounds ridiculous, right? We're just prone to not accept responsibility out of self-preservation and a host of other reasons. Nobody likes to be called out. Nobody likes to admit when they're wrong. I, I'm being first in line there. I never like to be confronted with my stuff. It's humbling. My mother is here this morning, and she has heard me say many times when I was a little boy, I didn't hit my sister, Mom. My hand did it. She knows. I'm reading through a marriage book. Here, I'm going to give you another one. I'm reading through a marriage book right now. And it says that the average time the couple stays in that original bliss of love where the other can do no wrong is about six months to about two years. After three months of marriage, um, I remember saying to my new bride, Justine, I was never an angry person until I met you. Perhaps it was really because my sin had finally been exposed in the right circumstance and the one who I was now closest with 
my sin was most offensive because of proximity to her, and she was now calling me on it. I don't get jealous. Brother, you just haven't had an opportunity to get jealous yet. You haven't, you haven't been passed over for a promotion from somebody else when somebody else gets it who is less qualified than you are. Have that happen, and you'll find out how jealous you really are. I'm not a bitter person, maybe you might say. You just haven't had someone do the inexcusable and the unforgivable to you yet. Give it time. We are all capable of the worst kind of sin, given the right circumstances. And when they present themselves, we have nobody else to blame, God's creation or God, not the circumstance, but ourselves. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, and then desire when it has conceived birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. What a picture of our sin nature. We fall prey to temptation, and we give birth to a little baby called death. So that's Adam. We recognize ourselves in Adam. What about Eve? Look at the next part. Verse 13. At least Eve is accurate, by the way. God says to Eve, what is this that you have done? And Eve says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. True statement. True statement. But do you notice that there's no acknowledgement or taking responsibility for the sin here? She follows just, just the way Adam had. And so we have here a depressing scene in our story. This is the classical account of sin nature on display. This is a great case study right here at the beginning. Blame, victimhood, and self-preservation. That's, that's, that is us. And yet the good news is that though man... And his nature hides and denies his own shame, and he blames others. God, in his nature, pursues after man and woman and allows his son to bear our shame. Watch this. Though Adam plays the victim and you and I play the victim, you may be playing the victim right now in your own world, Christ actually was the victim. Though we deny our sin and we deceive ourselves demonstrating that the truth is not in us, Jesus denied himself for you, and he took up his cross for every single person in here. And here's where the temple comes in. God creates a garden sanctuary, and man and woman mess it up by bringing sin into the world, and they forfeit it. Forfeit it. That's what our first parents do. God then gives them another shot later on with the people of Israel, and he gives them a tabernacle, and he later gives them a temple in Jerusalem with the most holy place where his presence would dwell, but they rebelled yet again. And even though he gives them another chance with the rebuilding of the temple after 70 years, they still rebel. God gives them something that is not made with human hands, but he sends them a person. And he goes before that temple, Herod's temple in the first century, and he looks up at that temple and he says, tear down this temple and I will raise it up in three days. But he wasn't talking about Herod's temple, he was talking about the temple of his own body. And this man sent into the world, Jesus Christ, gave up his own temple of his own body on the cross. And when he died, he tore the veil of the temple in, Herod, in, in, Herod's, in Herod's temple. He told the, t- tore the veil, 
took it down from the top to the bottom so that you and I would be able to enter into the presence of our Lord whom we had been separated from. And he did that so the Spirit's presence would dwell in our temple. And so we as a church would be a representation of that future temple where we will be with our Lord at the very end. And guess what? There actually won't be a temple because Revelation 21:22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamb is the, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then the angel shows me, showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. Doesn't that kind of sound like Eden, Genesis 2? This is something better. And of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. The Bible begins with a marriage, it ends with a marriage. The Bible begins with a garden sanctuary, it ends with something better. The Bible begins with the tree of life, and you and I will have the tree of life at the end of all of this. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Oh, how our nations need healing right now. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. He walked with his own people, but there will be a day where we will see his face. We stand in the beginning, in the middle of the already and not yet. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. This is redemption. We're not going back to Eden. We're going to something that is far better than what you and I have right now, a place where we don't need a temple any longer, but we will be with our Savior face to face. The one who says, though you have run from me, Adam, I still came from you, I still came for you, and I will make all this right again. Behold, I am the one who is making all things new. And so, and so, what is it going to be, church? Will you go Adam's way and you will shift blame on another? Or will you go the second Adam's way, Jesus Christ's way, that leads you towards repentance, redemption, reconciliation, and responsibility? You can't change your wife. You can only change yourself. You can't change your husband. You can only change yourself. You can't change that difficult brother and sister in Christ. Only you are accountable for your own actions. You can't change your mother-in-law, your father-in-law, your boss, your child. You might be able to manipulate them, but you can't actually change their heart. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is you. Your responsibility is to call out to the spirit of the living God today and say, Lord God, what do I need to own? Where do you want to change me? Where are you calling me towards repentance so that I would act not as my first father, Adam, but I would act like my older brother, Jesus Christ. That's what he's calling us to this morning. And so as we end this morning, we're going to have a membership meeting here in just a few moments. And we're going to talk about the possibility. If you're a guest here this morning, just you're kind of in an in-house discussion right here. So we're going to have a, a discussion about the house, the blue house right, right, right over here. Am I pointing in the right direction? That way, that way. There you go. Okay. And since I've gotten here, there's been so many of you have come up to me and said, hey, we've had this property on our back lot. What are we going to build back there? And I'm just going to kind of jump into our meeting a little bit right now. I mean, I don't, elders, deacons, I hope I'm not making you nervous, but just hear me out, okay? So many of you have come up to me and said, what might we build? What might it look like? Look like? Who will it be for? There's so many ideas. 
And I just want you to know I'm excited about considering future possibilities with you. I'm really excited about this. But I want to get the order right. I want to get the order right. And so let me be abundantly clear on where Aaron is at. More than brick and mortar, I care so much more about the transformation of hearts and minds. That is the top priority at Bethesda. It is making disciples. The buildings will come as they need to. In the Lord's timing, if he wills. But you and I need to keep watch over ourselves. Many of you know that I came from the Southern Baptist Convention before I came here. Uh, that, I, that, that was my role that I lived in. And one of the things that I would hear all the time was talking about other mainline churches and how liberal that they had become in their theology. And it said, well, you look at those churches, no wonder they're dying because they look exactly like the world. The world does its own thing Monday through Saturday. Why would they want to come to your church if it looks just like the world on Sunday? What's the point in coming? And so if you want to see a relic, just go to an Episcopal church. I mean, that was, that was what I was getting. These are places that have a low view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think there's a lot of truth to what I had learned and what I had heard. But I want to say to those of us this morning who have heard me over the last three or four weeks, and we've talked about some sensitive things related to sexuality and talking about biblical marriage and things like that. Shame on us. Shame on us. If we look at the Methodists across the street and say, thank God we don't have that LGBTQ ideology and we got our right doctrine right, and yet we treat each other low and demonstrate that we don't really believe the gospel ourselves. Or we look at the Lutherans across the street and we say, thank you, Lord, that we have the right view on baptism, and yet we have no problem slandering someone behind their back. Or we say, thank God that we have the right doctrine about Jesus Christ, unlike those Mormons. I don't know where I'm pointing at anywhere at this point, guys. You just know they're around us, right? The Mormons across the street, thank God we're not like them. And yet, we fall prey to our sin, and we don't listen to the words of James that says, faith without works is dead. You got the right doctrine, but you don't demonstrate it by your actions. You demonstrate that you don't really believe in the first place. So we must watch out for ourselves. Watch out for ourselves and not look at others to compare ourselves with while deflecting our own sin, but own our own stuff. Look within and say, Lord, change me. And when we get that order right, repentance, godly growth, Lord willing, more disciples here growing, maybe buildings in the future as the Lord leads. That's the kind of mindset I believe that the Lord wants us to have as we go into next steps. And so the choice before us from the Lord is clear. Christian and church, which way will you go? The way of the first Adam or the way of the second Adam? The first way leads to death. The second one leads to life, repentance, and godliness. The choice is yours. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com. Or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.